Welcome to Bible study. This is Nick Rita, your host. Very happy to be with you today and thank you for tuning in. It's our privilege again to open the Bible and to study from the Word of God. We are into this uh, theme for the few weeks, managing for the master. And today we are going to look into this, uh, unto the list of this. I would like to say hello to our uh, panel and I will welcome back Denise. It's good to have you with us. Thank you very much. It's lovely to be back. It's good to have you part of this, uh, Len. Yes. Hello, listeners. We welcome you to the program in the name of Jesus Christ. Lija, thank you for joining us. It's very good to be again in this. Joe, it's good to have you part of the program. It's a privilege. Thank you. Thank you. Jerry, thank you for uh, coming with us today, in particular because uh, you prepared this Bible study and you're going to facilitate. Yes, thank you, Nick. I'm looking forward to this study. Thank you. It's a very delicate topic, I will say, because it involves each one of us. Uh, Jerry, would you be able to take us through, please? Yes. Hello, listeners. I'd like to start today's study by reading the following verse. It's found in Matthew 25, verse 34. It says there, I'm reading from the King James Version of the Bible, New King James. Uh, Then the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. With those words, the king, who was identified in verse 31 as the Son of Man, or Jesus Christ, coming in his glory, and all the holy angels with him, will sit on the throne of his glory and reward the faithful, those who have surrendered and applied the teachings of the gospel. The title of this week's study is Unto the Least of These. This phrase is part of a proclamation spoken by the king when he said in verse 40, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it unto me. Who are the these mentioned here? Did or didn't do what? How did Jesus identify them? And why are they singled out for this kind of attention? Is the answer perhaps so simple that we can somehow overlook the obvious who these people are? and the it that Jesus referred to. So today we will look at the ministry of Jesus and how he related to and cared for those in society he called the least of these, what God's provisions were for this group of people throughout the history of Israel, and a few case studies of individuals mentioned in the Bible and how they responded to God's instruction on caring for those people. But let's start with a prayer. Lydia, could I ask you to pray for us, please? Holy Father in heaven, we're coming here before you again to thank you so much that we can be in, in your companionship today. Father, please bless us with your Holy Spirit and teach us again because we know, we want to know how to behave ourselves, how to treat all others, but those who are, who are the least in this society. 
Father, please teach us through, through your Holy Spirit and bless us abundantly with your Holy Spirit to learn from you because on our own, we are nothing. Father, thank you so much for your promises. Thank you. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Elijah. So let's identify who the least of these are. The Bible makes frequent reference to the fatherless, the widows, the strangers, and each of these groups have at least one thing in common. Generally speaking, they are poor as far as money and possessions go, and their lives would present far greater challenges just to stay afloat compared to the family that was complete or had a means of income and a home to live in. In Bible times as today, it remains a real struggle for survival for many in society. Can we as Christians simply shrug our shoulders, look the other way and pretend we don't notice the hardships of others, the ones the Bible calls our neighbour and our brethren? Denise, how would you respond to this question? Do we have a duty of care towards others, particularly those who we see struggling and in dire circumstances? Yes, Jerry, um, definitely we have a duty of care and the Bible is very clear about what our duty of care is to others. And I'd like to read you uh, a passage from Matthew 25, verses 31 to 46. And these are Jesus' words on the subject of uh, who we should be caring for. Uh, starting at verse 31, I'm reading from the NIB translation. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his throne in heavenly glory. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. When the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, I tell you the truth, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you did not look after me. They also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger? or needing clothes, or sick, or in prison, and did not help you? He will reply, I tell you the truth, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. 
So I think that passage is pretty clear about what our duty is to our fellow man. Mm, thank you very much, Denise. Yeah, that's like the, uh, the acid test for a true Christian, isn't it? Um, sobering words indeed. Now, Lynn, at the beginning of his public ministry, soon after being tempted by the devil in the wilderness, Jesus came to Nazareth and, as his custom was, went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. Can you explain what happened on that occasion and how it relates to our study today? Yes, well, I'm glad that Jesus went to worship on the Sabbath day and didn't go on the Sunday because he worshipped on the proper day of worship. Okay, he was in the synagogue and he was invited to read a passage of scripture, which was normal practice in a synagogue. I'm reading from Luke chapter 4 and verse 16 and 17. It says, and he stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. Then he rolled up the scroll gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began by saying to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Now he explained a little more. The reason he sat down was because it was normal practice for anyone who was teaching to be seated. So he sat down as an authority figure and he was telling them various things and the people didn't like it. Verse 28, it says, All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of town and took him to the brow of a hill which the town was built in order to throw him down the cliff. At first, They were very much in favour, but when he explained a little more who he was, they didn't want to believe it. Now, why didn't they want to believe it? Well, I'm going to say this. It's not that they couldn't believe, but it's because they wouldn't believe. Mm -hmm. I think we've got a lot of this going on in these modern times. People are faced with truth but don't want to believe it, and therefore they don't want to practice. You see, in the case of Jesus, there were many Jews present when he uh, raised Lazarus back to life. You know what they wanted to do? Rather than praise him because of raising Lazarus back to life, they wanted to kill him. And it just shows the stubbornness and the unbelief of these people. There is another factor The Jews had this belief that anybody who was poor or had a disease was cursed by God because they were wicked. And there would not have been very many, well, I doubt if there were any poor people at the synagogue that day. And here's Jesus focusing on the poor. And I think this really got up their noses because theirs was an elitist religion. And later on, as we go through this study, 
we'll see how that true religion is not elitist. So Jesus was not believed, not because the people couldn't believe, because they wouldn't believe. And anybody listening to me today, if you're in a situation where you know what is right, but you refuse to accept it, you have fallen into the same trap as these people in the synagogue that particular day. Yes, thank you, Len. Um, now, moving on, in, in God's perfect plan, uh, all should enjoy the abundance of divine promises. Uh, there should never be long-term or intergenerational poverty. Nick, how do we know this? What does the Bible tell us about that? Well, uh, uh, Jerry and panel, that's um, a very big question. <laughs> and I believe we need again to just uh, turn to to the Bible and learn some wisdom from the Bible. I just want to draw your attention to a couple of uh, verses in um, in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 15. And I'm living right from the beginning, uh, from the New, Ling- New Living Translation. And it says here, At the end of every seventh year, you must cancel the debts of everyone who owes you money. This is how it must be done. Everyone must cancel the loans they have made to their fellow Israelites. They must not demand payment from their neighbor or relatives for the Lord's time of release has arrived. When I'm reading this uh, passage in the Bible, Jerry, I'm thinking, how far are we from God's intention today? Because God didn't want people to suffer, to be in debt, to be suppressed in a way or the other. And if I um, continue a little bit uh, down in in uh, verse 7, uh, it says, yeah, but if there are any poor Israelites in the land of the Lord, your God, do not be hard-hearted or tied fast towards them. Instead, be generous and lend them whatever they need. I think that's a very important principle, Jerry and panel. And to get even more information, I'm, I'm looking a little bit further down in verse 11. There will be always some in the land who are poor. That is why I'm commending you to share freely with the poor and with other Israelites in need. If a fellow Hebrew sells himself or herself to be your servant and serves you for six years, in the seventh year you must set them free, set that servant free. When you release a male servant, do not send him away empty-handed. Give him a generous Farewell gift from your flock, your threshing floor, and your wine press. Look, when I look at this um, teaching in the Bible, Jerry and uh, and panel, just wondering uh, what should we draw from this in our time? Because we may think, oh yes, those uh, laws were given to the Israelites, to those people in those days. But are we living in a different world today? Are we not dealing with a pretty similar situations today? Are not 
so many people enslaved today because of uh, some hardship and some other things. How can we care about all those things in these modern times we live? I think these are big questions which uh, we should uh, revisit and uh, think over it to see what we can draw out of this. Then all we may benefit of a good life on this earth. Hmm. Okay, thanks, Nick. Um, I just want to reread, if I may, uh, Deuteronomy chapter 15, verse 11 in its entirety, because it says there again, for the poor will never cease from the land. Therefore, I command you, saying, you shall open your hand wide to your brother, to your poor and your needy in your land. So the poor will never cease from the land. In other words, there will always be poor people. Now, Denise, some would argue that, therefore, there's no point in lending a helping hand. Well, they might say, well, it's their own fault because of bad decisions and bad choices they've made in life. Is this always the case? And can you think of any other circumstances where someone can suddenly lose everything that they have? Yes, certainly. Um, As we all know, life can be very unpredictable. There are lots of situations that can happen suddenly, which can alter our circumstances, which can cause great financial difficulties. Um, some of these things could be losing your job at a certain age, losing your home through divorce, suffering an unexpected health crisis, uh, either physical or mental, finding oneself in a war zone, as in the Ukraine, or becoming the victims of a natural disaster like floods or earthquakes or bushfires. It could even be losing um, the breadwinner in a family, a husband, a wife or, or a partner who dies suddenly. Uh, and at the moment we've got rising interest rates and food prices that we haven't experienced before. So lots of situations can cause us, cause anyone financial hardship. Mm, absolutely. And these are the things that you don't plan for. They just suddenly, suddenly you're confronted with them and uh, somehow you have to deal with it as best you can. Len, you wanted to say something. Well, sometimes I've thought if I give to all the charities supporting the poor, I would become one of them. And I'm very aware of the uh, Save the Children Fund and some of those things where children are being born at a quicker rate than I think we could support them. Hmm. And I just wonder about this. I'm not making any moral judgment here, and I recognise that uh, we need to be generous with other people, but it seems such an overwhelming task Hmm. with the number of poor and especially children in the world that we will never be able to keep up. I think it's important, however, that people within our reach, within our knowledge, perhaps within our association, to help them. And I I don't think anybody would deny that. But I sometimes wonder about these multitudes of poor people who probably shouldn't have actually ever come into the world if um, proper birth control was practised that it's such an overwhelming task. How does my responsibility lie there? That's a question I haven't yet answered for myself. 
Yeah, that's a, that's a reasonable point. Where does it start and where does it finish? Huh? I was just, I was worried when uh, Len started um, uh, to say uh, that because uh, uh, obviously I was thinking from a different perspective, you know, you know, coming from a different culture, I was thinking totally different. But Len uh, came to the um, point when he mentioned that we should uh, care about those people around us. And I, then I, I was much more comfortable because, um, indeed, you cannot fix the whole world uh, yourself. But if we understand the principle of community, if we understand that what surrounds us, you know, it's what, what's reality, then we'll make a difference there. And if everyone is doing the same thing, then this will really expand. And that's what I, um, I was, uh, I said that, that I was worried because in, um, where I grew up, we live very much in community. You know, uh, we are families together and we care about each other. But the danger is today, um, even living in, in these modern times in a beautiful country like Australia is that we became very individualistic. You know, we don't know many, many times I heard about this, and this was very strange for me when I arrived in Australia. You don't know your neighbor, and that's difficult. You don't know what your neighbor is going through. Now, family, it's another thing, because you'll uh, be involved with the needs of your family, and that's good. But why not to make a step further and be in contact, in connection, with your neighbor. Now, I'm pretty sure that uh, all of us here on this panel, we do that because we learn from the Bible to uh, to do these sort of things. But yeah, this is a, a, a lesson which I will take. Mm. Sorry. Well, I was going to say pretty much what Nick, uh, Nick was saying is that um, in today's society here in Australia, um, we may not have the poverty that they have in some countries. And the least of these could be interpreted in any number of ways. It could be the little lady. I mean, loneliness is a curse in our society. It could be the elderly person next door across the road. Or um, it could be someone who's depressed or unemployed or, as Denise mentioned, struggling to pay their bills with uh, increased rates of mm. or increased uh, interest rates. So I don't think it's all financial. And sometimes we can err on looking at it just as money and poverty. People can be poor in many, many ways. And I think it's looking for the people who are needy and uh, reaching out to them and being a, of some assistance, of some help to them. Mm, absolutely. Now, Lydia, um, it's clear from what uh, Denise uh, shared, the uh, examples that she gave, uh, that anything can happen to anybody at any given time. Can you compare the Bible model? that defines how we as Christians should take care of each other with what, by contrast, is known as social Darwinism. That's a term that's um, bandied around now. Yes, Jerry. First of all, I would like to mention a few verses in Psalms, which uh, gives direction on how we should treat those in need. Uh, in Psalm chapter 82, verse 3 and 4, it says, Defend the poor and fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and needy. Deliver the poor and needy. Free them from the hand of the wicked. This passage indicates our involvement in 
many ways beyond just providing food for them. Then there are promises to those who help the needy. In Psalm 28 verse 27 says, He who gives to the poor will not lack. And there is another verse in Psalm 41 verse 1. It says, Blessed is he who considers the poor. The Lord will deliver him in time of trouble. So here is mentioning the fact that we have to help the poor in many ways, not only give them food or clothing uh, or other items of furniture or whatever they need. Uh, many times the people that are in such situations, they are very down um, psychologically. So they need our counsel, they need our encouragement, they need our words of comfort, they need our prayers also. But in contrast to this, even in more modern times, particularly in England, under the impact of what has been known as social Darwinism, many thought that not only was there no moral imperative to help the poor, but also that was in fact wrong to do so. Instead, following the forces of nature in which the strong survive at the expense of the weak, social Darwinism believed that it would be detrimental to society to help the poor, the sickly, and the indigent, because if they multiplied, they would only weaken the social fabric of the nation as a whole. However, cruel, this thinking was the logical outgrowth of belief in evolution and the false narrative it proclaims. Mm-hmm. So the Lord God and Jesus, Jesus helped the poor in many ways, socially, mentally especially physically. So the advice is to help the poor as much as we can in many ways. Yes, I I, I totally agree with you. Um, We can't go down the road of natural selection, can we, where um, it's every man for himself. We need to have a heart for our fellow uh, neighbours and uh, anybody around us, really, that we see suffering and struggling in any which way. Um, Len, in, in James... Chapter 1, verse 27, we read, it's almost like a definition, a pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. Is that all there is to pure and undefiled religion? Okay. Yeah. Can you elaborate? Well, it's a wild question, and it is a definition. Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this to visit the orphans and widows in their trouble. Part one. Part two, keep oneself unspotted from the world. Now, when Jesus was asked, which is the greatest commandment? He said, and I'm going to abbreviate here, love God. And then he said, added, and love your neighbour as yourself. And this is the part that we're talking about today. However, it is not just enough to um, do good to other people. 
We have an example of this. There's a judgment scene, and I'm reading from Matthew chapter 7 that says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? And then I'll tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. So, to come back to your question, Jerry, no, just being philanthropical and caring of those less fortunate than, than us is not enough. However, it is part of true religion. In Revelation chapter 14, verse 12, another definition is given about who are the saints. It says, here's the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and have the faith of Jesus. Anyone who gets the idea that simply by being philanthropical gives you enough points to pass into heaven is wrong. First of all, you have to obey, you have to accept Christ's sacrifice, and those things, the philanthropical deeds, the good deeds that true Christians do for other people will follow. But it's not the prime thing. It's the product. Thank you, Len. I think that's very well put. The product of a connection with God yes. and understanding yes. uh, what God requires. Very good. Now, we're going to move on and look at three examples of wealthy individuals that are mentioned in the Bible and how their relation to their wealth impacted both themselves and others. And we'll notice it's qu quite different from case to case. Um, first up is the story of the rich young ruler, which, by the way, is mentioned in, in three of the Gospels. And Joe, could you read Matthew 19, verses 16 to 22 and, and comment, please? And especially what Jesus meant when he said, if thou wilt be perfect, go and sell all that thou hast and give to the poor, which at first glance would seem to be a bit over the top. Okay. Well, starting in verse 16, it says, Now behold, one came and said to him, Good teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? So he, being Jesus, said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. But if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. He said to him, which ones? Jesus says, well, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honour your father and your mother, and you shall love your neighbour as yourself. The young man said to him, all these things I have kept from my youth, what do I still lack? Jesus said to him, if you want to be perfect, go. Sell what you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. But when the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Hmm. Well, on the surface, it appears that Jesus is indeed telling him that to be saved, that to be perfect, he needed to sell all that he had and give it away and follow him. However, we all know that that would be salvation by works not of grace. Does one become perfect if they divest themselves of all that they own and take a vow of poverty? 
I don't think anyone really thinks that, although some have done it. God cannot be bribed. It do- and it doesn't line up with the rest of Scripture. Um, I'll give one example. Paul, for instance, gives us advice in 2 Corinthians 8.11. Now, finish the work so that your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it according to your means. Paul encourages here generosity, but according to one's means, and certainly not as a means to salvation and eternal life. Now, as you said, what Jesus said to the young man may seem over the top, unrealistic, unreasonable. But I believe that Christ's point was to rock his world and to let him do some hard thinking and heart searching and realize how much he needed God in his own life. He had thought himself highly esteemed of God. And I think Len touched on that, that those who were well off were blessed by God and that he only needed one small thing to do and and he would add to this and then he already perfect life and that would guarantee eternal life. Um, now, Jesus, by what he said, had blown all that away. And what was he to think? I think of another text in Paul. Uh, Paul in First Corinthians also tells us, and I'll read from the Berean Bible. If I give all I possess to the poor and exult in the surrender of my body, that is in martyrdom, but have not love, I gain nothing. Certainly not perfection, not salvation. It says I gain nothing. The reality is that although the rich young ruler or the young man who and who could be any one of us, in reality had nothing. And Jesus was holding up a mirror to him. Now, God, Jesus could have said to him, um, you cannot serve God and mammon. Now, he said that before, hasn't he, in Matthew? In Matthew. But that would have probably led to a very, very generous donation to the church, and he would have felt that he proved that his heart was with God and not with his money. But Jesus really wanted to shake his belief in his own goodness because God cannot be bribed. He loves us and wants us to love him back. He wants our hearts, not our money. Mm, Absolutely. Can I just quickly um, uh, read a a quote from a book called Christ Object Lessons that really I think is very relevant to what we're talking about here. And it says there uh, in page 267, um, the rich man who had so many privileges is represented to us as one who should have cultivated his gifts so that his works should reach to the great beyond, carrying with them improved spiritual advantages. It is the purpose of redemption not only to blot out sin, but to give back to man those spiritual gifts lost because of sin's dwarfing power. Money cannot be carried into the next life. It is not needed there. But the good deeds done by winning souls to Christ are carried to the heavenly courts. But those who selfishly spend the Lord's gifts on themselves, leaving their needy fellow creatures without aid and doing nothing to advance God's work in the world, dishonor their maker. Robbery of God is written opposite their names in the books of heaven. The rich man had all that money could procure. He had lived as if all that he possessed were his own. He had neglected the call of God and the claims of the suffering poor. It's good to meditate on that. Now, Nick, it's said that money can't buy peace and happiness. Do you agree with this statement? And can you give us a reference in the Old Testament that clearly demonstrates the futility of chasing after wealth purely for selfish reasons? 
Oh, Jerry, well, uh, yeah, I don't know if I um, qualify um, necessarily to speak on that because I'm not a rich person, you know, to uh, lavish in uh, all I want, <laughs> you know, and then to really say um, that the money cannot fulfill you. But uh, what I see around, uh, definitely that's the case. Uh, I've seen people with a lot of money, but I noticed that they are not necessarily happy and fulfilled just because they have a lot of money. I mean, if I look in the Old Testament, probably one of the best examples um, will be, Jerry, to, to learn from the life of one of the wisest men on earth, you know, who lived on earth, a part of Jesus. And that was the King Solomon. And he speaks about this uh, situations, you know, when you chase everything in life. And himself, actually, he uh, he did that. Um, I'm just drawing um, your attention, my dear friend listening today. If you like to learn some wisdom from Ecclesiastics uh, chapter 2, uh, I'm just going to summarize a um, couple of things from this chapter. You know, uh, King Solomon, he asked God for wisdom and God really blessed him with wisdom. But then he was tempted, like each one of us, to taste everything in life. And he speaks here about how he he was uh, um, looking at life and said, what good is on, on on this life if you don't enjoy every moment of this life? Like uh, um, having pleasure, maybe even drinking, maybe building all sorts of things which you want to enjoy and all those things. And Solomon is saying that... Um, in the end, he looked at and he could see how meaningless were all those things. Uh, in verse um, 10 and 11, it says here, I denied myself no pleasure. Whatever I wanted, I got. I felt good about everything I had accomplished and felt that pleasure was the legitimate reward for my hard work. Then one day, I look at all my achievements and realize that none of it would last. In that sense, all my work was futile. It was as useless as chasing the wind. Mm -hmm. I believe what, uh, what wisdom are in those words and should we uh, reflect on um, this, when we are chasing things in life, when we are desiring things in life, for what reason are we desiring those things? Because in the context of our discussion today, I believe we have a privilege to live in these times and to make a difference in society. Mm -hmm. Now, a bit early, we talked about that uh, there was a, some point it was suggested that's not good to help people because that will... Uh, encourage them to be unproductive, which is true. Uh, I will say we should also teach people not to experience poverty, but if they are in poverty, then we should not turn around or yeah. have, a, have a, a blind eye. Mm. Absolutely. Joe? I think, uh, I think you, Nick, you said, um, 
money cannot buy peace and happiness. And I, I've heard that so many times, but poverty doesn't guarantee peace and happiness. In fact, money is irrelevant. I think it's one's connection with God that gives one peace and happiness. Um, not whether you've got money or not. You, we're encouraged to be content in whatever situation we find ourselves to be in. Um, and so I think money is almost irrelevant to one's peace and happiness. And it's right, Joe, but what I was trying to, to, to think, you know, during this is that actually that's what drives society today. It's all about watching what's going on with the, with the rates and with money in general. And you write what you said there. Money should not be the measurement in life. But unfortunately, we live in this uh, context and are we impacted by it. Mm. Okay, we need to move on now. I see time is marching on. Denise, Jesus hit the nail on the head when he compared the treasures that this world offers to the treasures that await the redeemed in heaven. In fact, there's a, there's a text uh, in Mark chapter 8, verse 36. That you, uh, would you read that for us, please, and comment? Sure. Um, I'd actually like to start in verse 34. Um, It says, then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world yet forfeit his soul? Um, and I see the the soul there is referring to eternal life. So what um, what good is it to gain success, to gain as much money as you can uh, at the price of eternal life? When you die, you can't take money and success with you. Uh, it has no meaning. But what is what you can um, rely on is eternal life and the promise that God has made to you. So I think it's pretty obvious what Jesus is saying here, that it's no no good trusting in money. Uh, we need to trust in God. Amen. That's, that's well put. Now, when the rich young ruler had turned away from Jesus, the disciples were absolutely astonished when Jesus said, how hard is it for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God? The prevailing belief was that the richer you were, the more God had blessed you. Many Christians still believe that to be the case. Len, you often hear the term prosperity gospel. Can you comment on that? Yes, well, there is a tension between what Jesus said, where he said it's uh, hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Uh, There's a tension between that and a commonly taught thing in churches these days called the prosperity gospel, It's also called the health and wealth gospel. It's also called the name it and claim it gospel. Mm. Basically, it teaches that God wishes his followers to be materially wealthy, free from suffering and sickness, and that any unmet need in someone's life is a lack of faith. Now, there are some very wealthy preachers who preach this, And here's a fairly typical thing. They'll say, if you give me, say, $1,000, 
God will give you $10,000. Now, what's the motivation in that? The motivation is a double motivation. The preacher himself is looking for money, selfishness, and the person who gives the money is also selfish. It is a corruption, although in some aspects might be true, but it is corruption of the the gospel where we are to consider the needs of others. This is total selfishness. I'll just read you a a few of these very rich preachers who've been preaching this. Kenneth Copeland, well, his wealth is probably somewhere between 300 and 800 million. Uh, Another one you might have heard of is Benny Hinn. Mm -hmm. His wealth is probably somewhere between 25 and 100 million. They've been preaching this and benefiting from it very much. In fact, it's bothered some people so much that there is a song that's been uh, sung, and this is part of the lyrics. If you come to Jesus for money, he's not your God. Money is. Jesus is not a means to an end. The gospel is he came to redeem us from sin. And that's the message forever I'll yell. If you're living your best life now, you're headed for hell. Okay, well, there is some truth in those lyrics. However, the prosperity gospel is a gospel of it's teaching people to be selfish, that you'll have the blessings of God will be abundant. You'll have plenty of wealth, you'll be healthy and happy and so on. It's a lie. We need to have a relationship with the Lord. And if he chooses to give us those things, uh, he says, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Don't you get caught up in the prosperity gospel. It's a gospel about selfishness. Mm. Okay, another figure that um, the Bible mentions is Zacchaeus, a man whose story ends quite differently to that of the rich young ruler. Joe, what do we know about Zacchaeus and, and how he acquired his wealth? How was he viewed by his contemporaries and how happy was he with his life? Yeah, Jesus was coming through. We know that Jesus travelled around. Um Israel. Now, Jesus was coming through the city of Jericho, and, and uh, Zacchaeus, who was a very short man, was very keen to see Jesus. Now, Zacchaeus was a tax collector. Mm. Now, this group of people was intensely hated by the people. And just a little about tax collection in Roman times. Well, wealthy people could uh, actually, well, those who didn't mind being marginalized, could actually bid for the right to be a tax collector. So they'd have to be wealthy to begin with. And then they would collect the taxes for the Romans and then they would add surcharges to cover costs, etc. And this was where the profit was and, and possibly lucrative in some cases. Um, and so, and, and of course, the Romans allowed for that because I imagine that um, if you had an Israelite collecting the taxes, they, you know, being Romans collecting taxes, they might make them a target of 
people who, you know, terrorists and stuff. So they would actually get people, their own people to collect the taxes on their behalf, collect the money. They keep some of it. Everybody's happy except for the tax collector and the people who hate him. And so, um, as a result, uh, they were one of the most hated people. That the prostitutes and tax collectors were seen as the biggest sinners of the people of Israel. And Jesus himself was criticized for hanging out with prostitutes and tax collectors or publicans. Now, the Bible tells us Zacchaeus was a chief tax collector, so he might have even had franchises and had additional cuts coming in. But back to him, he was being he was fairly short. And so he knew that because Jesus was coming through, he knew the route he would take. It would be impossible to see him because of the press. So he went ahead and climbed a sycamore tree to get a vantage point, which he did. And when Jesus came through on his way, he suddenly stopped unexpectedly, looked straight up at him and said, Zacchaeus, come down quickly. I'm coming to your place today. Now, um, this must have, he must have almost fallen out of that tree. (laughs) He comes down, scrambles down, and he says, Lord, 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 here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham, for the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. Now, Zacchaeus had plenty of money, but something lacked in his life, and it wasn't just the fact that people looked down their noses at him. The Spirit was speaking to his heart and had convicted him that he wasn't right toward God. Zacchaeus's heart melted, and when Jesus reached out to him, to quote the Bible, salvation had come to his house today. Very different to how it ended with the rich young ruler. Yes, thank you, Joe. Indeed, if you compare one to, with the other, their response was so totally different, wasn't it? Yes, uh, uh, Lydia, there's, there's one other person that we were going to touch on, and that was Job, another wealthy man. Uh, among the many outstanding features that he had, there was one that I think is worth mentioning with regard to um, his connection with the poor. What does the Bible tell us about that? The story of Job, we all know, know this. It's a well, very well known story. As we uh, know that in the, in the first chapter, it says that this man, Job, was blameless and upright. Blameless it means complete, full of integrity, upright. It means he was a straight man, uh, walking on a straight path and being steady in his belief. Uh, he feared God and shunned evil. He, he was very wealthy. He had seven sons and three daughters, and he owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 donkeys, and had a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all the people of the East. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, the devil provoked God and asked him for his permission to test Job. And the Lord God uh, said about Job that he is no, there is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. And uh, of course he was uh, tested by, by the devil and uh, uh, even after his test, 
he hold fast to his integrity even by being tempted by uh, his wife saying the curse God and die. God could say again after the test uh, about Job, uh, have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. And he still maintains his integrity, though he, you incited me against him to ruin him without any reason. So this is the big, great controversy and the cosmic conflict uh, battle. But mm. I would like to say uh, that Job was a kind of a person that he looked after all those people around him. In chapter 29, in few verses, it says that uh, Job rescued the poor who cried for help and the fatherless who had none to assist him. The man who was dying blessed me. I made the widow's heart sing. I put on righteousness as my clothing. Justice was my robe and my turban. I was eyes to the blind and feet to the lame. I was a father to the needy. I took up the case of the stranger. I broke the fangs of the wicked and snatched the victims from their teeth. Mm -hmm. So Job was there, a wealthy man of faithfulness and integrity who has it all, including a righteous character. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you. Uh, thank you, Lydia. Now, uh, sadly, I think we've pretty much ran out of time here. So, uh, listeners, I'd like to conclude today's study with a quote from a book called Sons and Daughters of God. On page 148, uh, it says, The majesty of heaven identifies his interests with that of suffering humanity. Our associates and companions are in need of heartfelt kindness and tender sympathy. It is impossible to grow up into Christ's our living head, unless we practice the lesson he has given us of sympathy, compassion, and love. It is impossible to reflect the image of Christ unless this love, which is of heavenly birth, is in the soul. No one will pass the portals of the city of God who does not reflect this attribute. So there has to be a change deep within our soul um, as it relates to looking after each other, having an eye for the needs of others, and actually doing something about it. Um, there's a beautiful song written by Michael Smith, Michael W. Smith, called Ancient Words. We know that quite well. And it says, Ancient words, ever true, changing me and changing you. We have come with open hearts, O let the ancient words impart. And it's our wish that, that these words so relevant for us today as well, may have the same effect that changes us, that we will not only love the Lord our God with all our heart and soul and strength, but our neighbours as ourselves. Len, I'd like you to close with a prayer, please. Yes, let's pray. Dear Father in heaven, we desire to be true believers, to accept the gospel of Jesus, to be obedient and to be be sensitive to the needs of others and where we perceive a need to do something about it. We pray for your blessings, meaning the panel, 
and all those who are listening to this program today, that we might hear those words, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord, prepared for thee from the foundation of the earth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you so much, everyone, for uh, your time today and uh, participating to this um, study. Um, indeed, very interesting one to notice and to learn how to be involved in the community and helping the needy. I would like to encourage you, my dear friend listening today, by inviting you to join us again next time to learn more about planning for success. The Bible is not talking only about to give things, but it's about how to be a successful man. I pray that you will be blessed. And uh, until next time, may God richly um, bless you, be with you, and you to experience his hand in your life. May God bless you.